Hello, welcome to another edition of Talking Foosball Direct, the Bundesliga show, your source for all things German football. I'm your host, Matt Herman, and this week uh, we're mulling over the meaning of a whole host of interesting results on Bundesliga Match Day 13, including those that help us gear up for the, you know, Zogananta Klassiker next week. To help me through this process, I have a really exciting new guest. It is Adam Kahn, who you might know through the excellent uh, analysis site Breaking the Lines, as well as his own Bundesliga newsletter. Welcome, Adam. Thanks for having me, Matt. It's a pleasure to be on and excited to get started. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But just just since I have you here, and because I already showed a degree of discomfort or skepticism about the uh, Der Klassiker name, how do you feel about it? You're, you're somebody who's paid attention to German football long enough to feel like maybe it's good, maybe it's not good. Yeah, well, it feels like one that's really made for the TV audiences a little bit. You know, the Klassiker, everybody, everything needs a bit of a snazzy name. You see it with the, the Stadt Derby in Berlin as well, so... Yeah, it seems like one that's more made for the sky audiences than than the ones that are actually in the stands and at the stadiums. Oh, yeah. I, I think there is plenty at stake for the home fans, for the away fans, for the people, you know, sort of living and dying by their teams for years and years. But, yeah, you, you can do a lot of good little promos. You can uh, blast things all week on the Twitters, on the Instagrams, and, and by golly, I'm sure they will. Okay, so – we're going to get the show on the road. We'll be back uh, with plenty of discussion about Match Day 13's juiciest events. While I have you here, please do subscribe to the pod. Rate the pod. Tell your friends about the pod. If you're feeling like a total sweetheart, become a supporter on Patreon, where we have tons of Bundesliga history podcasts, tactical breakdowns, single club deep dives, all that. It's a big help in keeping us afloat. Be right back. Here comes part one of Talking Foosball Direct. Well, 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 the Bundesliga hype machine, which we've already made reference to, is preparing to go into high gear for the week ahead of the one that they call Der Klassiker. And I think this weekend actually gives plenty to chew on. You know, both FC Bayern München and Borussia Dortmund were winners on match day 13, which maintains that tantalizingly slim one-point gap at the top of the league in, you know, Bayern's favor. But the two giants got it done in very different ways. Dortmund were 3-1 winners away to Wolfsburg, a team that had uh, entered the weekend in sixth place. And, uh, you know, Bayern, they were 1-0 winners at home to second bottom side Bielefeld. You know, Adam, I, I reckon we should probably go with the team who, you know, had maybe a little bit more wind at their backs this weekend. But uh, I'm willing to entertain other ideas. You want to talk about uh, Dortmund first? Yeah, I think it's a good place to start. And I think that the fact that they obviously are able to maintain that one-point gap going into this big fixture that's also going to be at home for Dortmund, that's kind of the big takeaway because – Anytime you have a Der Klassiker coming up where there's a seven or eight point gap, it's really one of those where we can already say goodbye to the title after that if Dalton fails to win. But here at least we can all entertain a, a breakup of those 10 consecutive Meisterschale if Dalton do end up winning this match. And it's something that is, is possible this year because we, we've seen again this weekend with Bayern, they are valuable to, to various aspects of their game, particularly defensively. Yep. I mean, it's interesting. You mentioned defense and you mentioned, you know, in, in your newsletter uh, this past week that Bayern have, have not looked quite as solid defensively. This week was something different. We'll get there. It was you know, not scoring the many, many, many chances that they, they had at their disposal. Just to sort of 
fill everybody in about the, the deal with Wolfsburg and Dortmund. I mean, oddly enough, Wolfsburg were the first on the board. Uh, Valt Weghorst scored very early in this match. And, you know, Dortmund got back in it through Emery John's penalty kick before the first half was over. And uh, second half was was much more in, in Dortmund's favor, much more to their liking. Donio Malen got his second Bundesliga goal uh, before making way for Erling Holland. Remember him? He scored... You know, just like for the 50th time in the 50 games for Dortmund. No, no big deal. <laughs> we might as well just go ahead and start talking about Holland first because he's just probably the most exciting player in the league. Obviously, it's, his return is a little late to help them in Europe. That uh, kind of went off the rails this week. But it's still worth a lot in the Bundesliga. I mean... Our guest last week when I was on with Kit Holden, mostly talking about the uh, the Berlin Stadtmeisterschaft, but other things as well. We were thinking that Holland probably wouldn't be back for another few weeks, but you know, in that he is bionic, as so many people on Twitter always say, I guess we shouldn't be surprised if it was back earlier. How big of a deal is this going to be for them heading into Der Klassiker and, and really moving forward this season? I mean, I think it's massive. I think he showed once again why he's the key guy for this Dortmund side. I think without him, you could have already wrote that off, uh, the Classica, because Dortmund has just too many errors defensively, like we saw again with that Wolfsburg goal in midweek. They're not going to be able to keep clean sheets, and the way to beat Bayern is to outscore them. So I think that having a guy like Holland in there, who, as you mentioned, has 50 goals in what feels like no more than 40 games is is a big error to have in their feather, and it's someone that is capable of really being that key factor in that Saturday. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You mentioned Dortmund's, you know, defensive liabilities, and they have been, you know, they were exposed in that early goal from Vakehorst. They've been exposed in spades in their European campaigns, especially in those those two games against Ajax, but you could say, truthfully, in the most recent game against Sporting. Is it just that their Bundesliga games are not as hard as their Champions League games? Or is there something else going on with how Marco Rosa is setting them up for um, their league matches versus some of the games in Europe, do you think? I think it's not as simple as that because you see that even though they're pretty high up there in the table, I mean, they're just outscoring opponents, basically. And we see it again a little bit with Wolfsburg. You know, they, they concede early on and it's a goal that's highly avoidable again. It's down that left flank where we see a player like Nico Schulz, who was brought in for 25 million almost and was a German international at that point, has just really not been up to the level. And the fact that after 13 games, they've conceded 19 goals, that's not exactly what you what you need from a side who's supposed to be a title candidate. And although it's not necessarily ending up with them dropping points, it's it means that they constantly need to, as I said, outscore opponents and are relying on players like Haaland, Royce, and, and now a slightly more informed um, Daniel Malin to kind of bail them out in these key situations. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. I mean, in that this is Dortmund, and everyone has high expectations for Dortmund. Dortmund is a side that um, we want and sometimes expect to be pushing Bayern for uh, the top of the table, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we have had a lot of critical things to say about Dortmund at times. We talk about their um, defensive fragility and or boneheadedness. We talk about, you know, some of, of the games where they look like they just don't make enough of the chances that they create. But should we not step back and also just think they're only a point back from Bayern and they can take the lead in the league 
if they get a result in Der Klassiker, if they can get a win, that is. Is there something that Marco Rosa has brought to this team in this young season so far that you can actually say has changed the way that they played or the way that they're getting results? I mean, they're getting results much more consistently than they had, let's just say, through most of last season. Yeah, I think you did say that perhaps that's flying under the radar because they're not always kind of winning these matches 4-5-0. They're not always doing it convincingly. But at the end of the day, a, a team that wins championships is one that's also able to grind out results regardless of how you're performing. And we have seen that more from, from Borussia Dortmund. I think another aspect perhaps is, is I see some some key individual performers that are that are doing really well this season. I, I looked at a Gregor Kubel, for example, who's come in in goal and been a major upgrade on Roman Berkey. I think that if you look at their XG numbers that they're conceding, they're not far different from last season, but they just have a shot stopper and they was able to bail them out in key situations, whereas the combination of Berkey and Hits was really doing the opposite almost, letting in a goal more than they should have. And then I also, of course, have to touch on a guy like Jude Bellingham because I think that it's not all down to Marco Rosa's coaching that we've seen him kind of come even more into the fore this year. But him being able to chip in with the odd goal here and there is, is kind of alleviating the burden off Erling Holland. And although he was injured for, for quite a bit of this season, has mean that they've stayed consistent with Byron in the lead at least. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that that's, you know, I think it's important for us not to get too coach-centric, but it's just been so tempting this season when you had basically every team in the top six changing their coach. The question is just always asking itself, just to harp on coaches one more time, and, and to talk about Wolfsburg for a moment before we turn our attention to Bayern, who is uh, you know Dortmund's opponent in the Klassiker next weekend. What, what's your take thus far on Wolfsburg under Kofeld? It wasn't a very great week. For him, for them, I mean, they they were losers at midweek in in Seville. They didn't look wonderful against Dortmund. Is some of that sort of new manager bounce maybe wearing off in in Wolfsburg, or, or is there something else we can chew on there? Yeah, I think you could most definitely put it down to that. I think that particularly that match in Seville was a bit of a step backwards because I, I remember watching those ninety minutes and coming out after that game feeling like I kind of wasted my whole evening. It was pretty bland display of kind of that Oliver Glasner era, but pre 4-2-3-1 Glasner era. So really just that tepid possession football that was aimless and just waiting to concede. And I think that Kofeld has, has earned good praise for kind of bringing more of a defensive security back, leaving those guys like Dodi Lukabakio on the bench to have him come on in the last few minutes of matches where he could kind of use his attacking dynamism but not forfeit their defensive security. But I think this Wolfsburg side still needs a lot more in possession. You, you still see them relying on Wood Weghorst for goals. A guy like Lucas Nemecha to really pull something out of the bag. And they're still heavily relying on that right flank of Kevin Babu or um, Rito Baku to kind of come up with some dynamism and bring them forward. There's not a lot of possession-heavy football and there's not a lot of really intricate passing plays like we see from these other top sides like Leverkusen, Dortmund, or Bayern. Yeah, yeah. It, it could just be that they are a cut below some of these some of these other teams. Okay, let's turn our attention then uh, over to Bayern. They had another one of those games that they seem to have sometimes and I guess we could put a couple of games uh, in this category where they they kind of did most of what they needed to do 
except forgot to score or at least didn't get it done uh, for a really long time. I mean, they put together a whole lot of chances in this game against Bielefeld, but they didn't get it on the board until 19 minutes from time, Leroy Sané being the man who gave them the goal that they desperately needed. We have seen Bayern struggle a little bit, and I think we're obviously talking about them struggling on a higher level than most teams struggle. But they did lose to Augsburg not long ago. They have uh, put together a number of narrow wins lately. I mean, does a close call like this even surprise you anymore? This is this is not the Bayern from October that was just beating everybody 5-1 or whatever. I think the way in which they won the result is I think that nobody really would predict a 1-0, seeing how Byron was really lacking defensively, but going forward, there was still a ton of firepower there, and, and you don't really see a guy like Lewandowski being kept off the score sheet very often, to be honest. I mean, we talked about Erling Haaland's goal-scoring record earlier, and we'll be here all day if we list off all of Lewandowski's Bundesliga goals, so I think that was probably the major surprise, but I think credit also needs to be due to Arminia Bielefeld, because I mean... They've only conceded 19 goals this season, which, as we said, is the same as Dortmund. So it's not the defensive issues that are kind of keeping Bielefeld in the relegation zone. It's the fact that with Fabian Plus, they have a second division striker at best. So, yeah, if they can kind of get more firepower in in, um, in January and kind of get a real center forward for the first time in their Bundesliga career, then I could see Armenia Bielefeld at least going up to 13th or 14th by the end of the campaign. Yeah. Okay. I, I want to let you crack into these these defensive difficulties that it's your your belief are kind of holding Bayern back right now. I mean, what exactly are these problem areas, and how do you think they might be something that Nagelsmann and and Bayern can overcome? Yeah, I think it's it's a bit twofold because on the first hand, you need to kind of look at Nagelsmann's tactics, and, and it's kind of what had them working so brilliantly at the beginning of the season, but it's also on the same sense, it's why they've kind of regressed a bit in the latter few weeks. It's the fact that he's brought in a, in a high-pressing system, so not one that is necessarily pressing all over the pitch, but selectively looking to win these balls really high up the field where you not only force teams into into turnovers, but on the same hand, you're you're creating goal-storing op- opportunities that way because you're basically right in front of goal when you win the ball back. But on the other hand, if, if a side is able to break through that, then you're left with huge gaps in midfield, 2v2s at the back. And that's something which teams like Union Berlin have exploited, Eintracht Frankfurt and their win. So it's definitely a way that you can get at Bayern if you can bypass that initial that initial phase of pressure. And I think that this side is definitely capable of routinely bringing that about in the big matches. But we see just how many fixtures that an elite team in Europe has to play this season. I mean, it's... Every 14 days, you probably have four or five fixtures, and, and in Bayern, you have a squad that isn't necessarily very balanced. I mean, you have a really good first 11, but when it comes to depth, they don't have exactly what they had a couple of years ago when you had Pep Guardiola or Ancelotti's reign. So there's a lot of factors coming into play why Nagelsmann hasn't necessarily been able to use the system as routinely as he'd like, or he's using it, but it's not coming across as well as he would have hoped for. And then they're open to these 2v2s at the back, which any center back can attest to is is quite a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you talk about some of these, both issues of potential squad fatigue, as well as just the sort of natural pressure that gets put on a defense when they are prone to being left exposed, is Dortmund a team like Frankfurt or like Augsburg or like Union Berlin, who can take advantage of those weaknesses? I mean, I'm not asking you to say, yes, Dortmund are definitely going to pick them off and and, and we're going to have uh, a new uh, team topping the table. But how credible 
do you see that as as a, as an outcome for next week's Classico? Yeah, I think if you look back at that Stuttgart Dortmund game from a couple of weeks ago, and you look at um, Dortmund's final goal, where they just have a brilliant counterattack. I think Stefan Tedes it was who played that great ball through, and then Royce and Torgan Azar combined. Those are exactly the type of chances that you get against Bayern. I think if there's one thing Dortmund can do, specifically with an Erling Holland in the side, it's quick combination play, breaking at speed. So I think that that's definitely a way that Dortmund can hurt Bayern. But it's also something that Nagelsmann definitely will bring into his game plan and try and at least keep Herling Holland quiet in that sense. So they're not going in these 2v2s against a player of his quality. So, it's, yeah, it's definitely something really interesting to look out for. And you're already getting me excited for Saturday's matchup because that's, that's quite, a, quite a turning point that's going to be right in, in the center of attention. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm legit excited too. I feel like there's been such a sense of you know, dread or, or like, um, you know, not quite full throated enthusiasm for this game on a number of occasions in recent years. And I'm a hundred percent there. I'm, I'm really, really up for it. Let's move over to, to something else. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the sort of, I guess in my mind, this was the game that sort of pitted two teams who have pretty serious, Champions League aspirations against each other, but have had some pretty serious problems with inconsistency thus far. So I was really interested to see who was going to be up for it more. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about Leipzig versus uh, Leverkusen. You know, Leverkusen were 3-1 winners in Leipzig. Kind of a weird, eerie atmosphere. But this, this was the first, you know, Geisterspiel game without fans in a while that I had seen from the Bundesliga. So it was kind of like a, you know, ghost of pandemics past uh, situation. But I, I totally understand where they're coming from. Saxony, things are pretty messed up there. So, uh, you know, be careful, everybody. I'm kind of on the fence about where things are standing for these two teams. I mean, this was a big week of, of highs and lows for Leipzig. We've seen a lot of those um, over the season. I mean, they, they were 5-0 winners away uh, against Brugge. And then they had this match where they were just firing blanks up front. That was a very nice finish from, from Andre Silva for their one goal. But other than that, they did not put um, Leverkusen under as much pressure as they should have in terms of just actually, you know, converting chances. What, what do you see as, as being this team's fundamental problem? right now yeah i think i i see it in a sense quite similar to to byron in the fact that when Leipzig gets their gets their pressure right that's kind of when they find success and we saw that in Brugge midweek where the lights of brian broby in his first start was completely there and kuntu showed again why he is more than worthy of a french national team call up but then today i mean they just weren't able to get that significant pressure in the key areas and I think the second goal was a was a key impact moment because you saw a guy like Jonathan Ta completely able to just play a long ball uncontested over top. And then you have those 2v2s that we mentioned previously that are just everyone's nightmare. And I think that that's also a reason why Marsh or, or Bayer Lotze, who was there, I guess, because Marsh was out with illness, Bayer Lotze ended up taking Broby out after 42 minutes because if you're unable to make those pressures against against the defensive line, and you play so high up the pitch and leave so much space behind your own back four, then you're really you're really just absolutely destroyed. And that's what we saw today, especially in the first half. And Leipzig brought it back in the second 45, but then you also see the quality of Bayer Leverkusen with just a, this electric front four of, of Diaby, um, Adli, Wurz, and Schick, 
that are just so pacey, so direct in, in their attack and approach. And yeah, it's it's a really good side they have at Leverkusen, and they're also in third place. So maybe not a title challenge from the Wertself, but they're definitely more than capable of going back into the Champions League this season. Yeah, I, I was pretty interested in some of the stuff you've been putting out lately about uh, Jeremy Frimpong, who, you know, you mentioned that front four from Leverkusen, and, and, and when that front four is healthy and in form, it's, it's very hard to take your eyes off of them. But if, if you do for a moment, uh, there's probably something worth watching with Frimpong. What, what do you like so much about him? Yeah, I think that he's just a very exciting player to watch. I don't think he's necessarily a finished product like, uh, I don't know, maybe a Joshua Kimmich at right bet, for example, who isn't always the most fun player to watch, but he just does. 99 out of 100 actions directly. I don't think Frimpon's that guy. I think he does probably about 70 out of 100, but there's always something that's just such a wow factor about his play. I, I think some of just the statistics you list off, he has one of the highest sprint numbers in the Bundesliga, so he's just up and down that pitch all day long for the full 90 minutes, and he's making so many actions in the final third for what is a player that's traditionally a right back. So he kind of shows the style that Sewan's brought in this gung-ho attacking approach that kind of takes the best aspects of Peter Bose's era and kind of molds it into what is Sewan's tactics at Young Boys Bayern, where it's a bit more ball possession oriented. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, you, you, you just mentioned Gerardo Sewan in his sort of gung-ho tactics, and I think there has been a lot of talk over the season about Jesse Marsh and his tactics with this um you know, RB side. You mentioned some of those pressures that they attempt to put on the ball high up the pitch, and when they go wrong, they really go wrong. Of course, Marsh was not at the touchline, as you mentioned. He uh, tested positive for COVID. I'm not really sure whether that means he's, um, you know, laid up or if he's just, uh, you know, isolating for for precautions' sake. I assume he's he's vaxxed. And there has been a bunch of talk about his, you know, his decision to take this side a little bit back more toward the sort of pure Red Bull way, less possession, less ball circulation, more verticality. You know, you still sound like you're pretty high on him. I, I saw that, you know, in in a Tactics Room podcast recently, you said you thought um, he was the new coach among all that, you know, string of new coaches in the Bundesliga who you thought in a sort of a long-term sense was sort of on the right track most. Why? And And at what point would you change your mind about that? I think that the the primary reason why I, I was would go out on a limb to say that is because when you see RB Leipzig at their best, there's a true game plan there. You see kind of Jesse Marsh's ideas coming to life, and you see that when the side is completely switched on, when they have the right tactics for the match at hand, it's impossible to beat them, basically. We saw that in the Dalman match. Of course, Dalman had injuries and, and everything else. But I think that even if they had the lights of Erling Holland and, and the other Kuchermann that was all missing, I still think that Airbnb Leipzig would have beat them on the day because their pressure was just so succinct. It was all together and, and communal. And even though they left that space behind their back line, Dortmund could never get out of that, that suffocating pressure and actually play those balls into those dangerous pockets. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's, bas- that's basically my main idea on Airbnb Leipzig. I think that Obviously, eighth place isn't where they want to be at this point, but it's still only four points behind fourth. So it just shows that there really isn't a side besides Bayern and Dortmund that have been really completely steady for the season. And I think it's far from over for RB Leipzig. And if they can get out of Europe maybe entirely and then solely focus on the Bundesliga, I could see the squad going really far this campaign. Okay. So there, there's, there's still reason to think 
that uh, you know, I'm American. You're American. He's he's our American hero. They're, they're, he's not he's not going anywhere anytime soon. You're saying? No, I think that we won't be seeing him back at MLS just yet. And I think that Greg Berhalter is going to be at the 2022 World Cup instead of Jesse Marsh. But who knows? Who knows? Hey, 2026, 2026, man, 2030. <laughs> we got time. Jesse's, you know. Well, okay. At, let's 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 leave our little Marsh fantasies aside and talk about his uh, one of his mentors. I, we're going to sort of step out of the Bundesliga box for just a moment here, which we don't often do. But I think this is just too big a news for us to pass over. I mean, Ralf Rangnick, who is basically the granddaddy of the uh, the Red Bull system in terms of of setting uh, a tactical agenda, setting a sort of club building agenda, is moving on. It looks like he's going to be taking over Manchester United, at least until the end of the season, and then is supposedly going to turn into some sort of uh, advisor, um, consultant, whatever. You know, who knows what the future holds. But I'm super excited about this, in part because I really quite like the brand of football that uh, Ralph Rangnick teams play and and by extension, generally like uh, the football that Red Bull teams play, even if I have a lot of reservations about the overall project. But I'm also excited because this is the biggest stage that there is in the Premier League. I know that the shine has been taken off Manchester United over the last decade. I know that um, in terms of money and or know-how, the likes of Liverpool, City, and Chelsea have, have really passed them over in recent years. But I'm just super excited to see somebody who I think is one of the more transformative coaches of the last generation go to what I still think is maybe the most important club in world football. I think this is pretty cool. What do you think? Yeah, I think that exciting is probably the best word because you don't really know how it's going to go. We've never seen Ralph Rangnick take this uh, a job outside of Germany at this point. He's obviously been in this supporting role at Lokomotiv Moscow, but he hasn't been in the managerial dugout anywhere else. And he's also been holding out for this for quite some time because it's been a while since he's been in the managerial space. I saw him lean to the lights of AC Milan a couple of years ago, Newcastle more recently. So he's definitely been, been pinpointing one of these top, top European clubs. And in Man United, he definitely has that. And I think that's another reason why this is so interesting is that he never really had this big top caliber club. In Germany, he's not been at Dortmund or, or Bayern. He started, of course, at Ulm, which is a very lower lead side. And, and then he went to Hoffenheim, of course, a very new project at that point. Was at Schalke, brought them to a semifinal in the Champions League. And then, of course, most known for his work at Leipzig and, and the Red Bull franchise in general. But these aren't exactly your historical clubs on the level of Manchester United. So that's a whole new challenge in and of itself. And it's something I'm excited to see, but... I definitely don't know how it's going to go, especially adapting to English football and kind of the media presence there as well. Because if you lose one game at Hoffenheim, it's very different than if you lose one game at United. Yeah, yeah. And I'm going to say that I think that there is a, a pretty strong reluctance. And I know that there's been big exceptions to this. We've seen Jurgen Klopp go to Liverpool and, and do very well over a number of years. We've seen Thomas Tuchel get off to a really good start at, at Chelsea. But, you know, I don't think that there are a lot of people in the English media who necessarily want to see Germans do well, let's just say. So 
I would not be surprised if he has any bumps in the road early on for them to sort of blow it into some, some, some pretty big proportions. But then again, maybe I'm completely off base. Maybe that's just life in the big city when, when you're coaching a team like Manchester United. I don't, I can't say that I watch enough Premier League to know the ins and outs of what this squad might do for Ralph Rangnick or what he might do for the squad. Do you have any, any, thoughts about that or is that sort of outside your purview as well yeah well i mean i think i looked at i looked at specifically that number nine that they have up top i think his name is cristiano ronaldo yeah. I, I might have heard of him oh, right, before. yeah 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 but, but it's espnfc exactly... has maybe told me about this guy once or twice <laughs> yeah yeah he's he's a young talent coming through or something like that but he's not exactly your typical ralph runnick center forward you know he's had young guys like roberto fermino adem baba um, at Leipzig, of course, the use of poles. And these are like high pressing forwards that come there for their work rate and, and their intensity out in and out of possession. So kind of molding into this this style and, and a team which has real superstars is something that Runyit's never had to do. And it's going to be really interesting to see how he's able to kind of put forward this this high intensity game with some players that are really established already in their careers and aren't necessarily going to be open to to having a coach tell them, hey, Cristiano Ronaldo, you need to trek back all the way into your own half in, in, the, in the last 10 minutes of the game and you need to press from the front and win back the ball high up the pitch. So, yeah, in that sense, it's definitely going to be interesting to see how he's kind of able to handle these bigger egos. Yeah, although, you know, we, we've all seen Cristiano's Instagram. We know he's, he's plenty fit. I mean, what do you, what do you stay in fit for like that if not to, if not to press high? Yeah, I think that that Cristiano Ronaldo isn't necessarily as receptive to some some Red Bull ideas as maybe a young Tyler Adams or an Amadou Haidara is. But yeah, it's definitely going to be fun to watch and see how perhaps Cristiano Ronaldo becomes the next gauging pressing machine. Yeah, yeah. It w- wouldn't that be just the thing? Yeah, it's interesting. I'm admitted many, many times on this podcast that I not the hugest fan of of Premier League football. But this this might actually get me to watch a few games. All right, let's let's take a quick break. Okay, we are back for part two of Talking Football Direct, the part where we talk about the rest of the match day just gone. This was match day thirteen, and uh, I, I think. Probably the, the fixture that was highest up on many people's lists, certainly in one region, uh, but, you know, across Germany, this is a fixture that has a lot of tradition and uh, eyeballs surrounding it. This is Cologne versus Gladbach, the Rhein Derby, the biggest of the many Rhein Derbys. And this was a huge win for Cologne, 4-1. They pulled even with the Foles with this win on, I guess, everybody's on 18 points in this league, or half the league is on 18 points, it feels like, including these two teams now. A scoreless first half in this game, totally wild second, with Dejan Lubicic and Jonas Hofmann trading goals before the, the Billy Goats ran away with it. It was Mark Ut, then Andre Duda, then Seb Anderson, all getting on the board. 4-1, the final, as I said. Yeah, I mean, these, these two teams are level on the table, but I think certainly the expectations game where these two teams have been in recent years clearly favors Cologne. People are, are sort of looking at them as as the team who has, has transformed over the course of, of one season to the next. What, in your view, has changed so much for Cologne since Stefan Baumgart has come on that, that, that's got them working? 
Well, I think you mentioned him right there, Stefan Baumgart himself, because I think that he's kind of not only brought a refreshing pair of eyes to the side, but he's also brought a refreshing pair of tactics. You know, he's he's not exactly doing spectacular possession football, but it's pretty much been route one, get the ball out wide and cross it into Anthony Modeste. And I think that's why you see them lead the lead the lead in headed shots and headed goals and crosses per 90. So, yeah, they're definitely direct, but it's, it's working like a treat. They have 22 goals so far, which is in the top five in the division. And it's it's kind of been spectacular football, which we weren't really accustomed to last year, because I was amongst perhaps many in the Bundesliga who just on a performance basis would have been OK to see Colin get relegated because they weren't exactly the ones to tune into last year. Besides Jonas Hector, they're weren't really a lot of guys that you could really cement yourself and say that they were Bundesliga quality. But yeah, I think in such a short space of time, Baumgart's really got them ticking and they were as hard as it is to say as a Gladbach fan, rightfully deserving of the Rhineland Derby title this time around. All right. You let the cat out of the bag right there that you, you are <laughs> um, a Gladbach fan. You probably are a bit more invested than, than many in what's going on with the Foles this season. What exactly do you think is holding them back under Adi Hütter. Has he found the right mix yet? Has he found the right tactics? Is this also a matter of, I don't know, personnel coming in and out through the season? What what exactly is going on? Yeah, I think it's it's quite difficult to say. Like a lot of the clubs, I think we talked about Leipzig earlier in the show, but it's it's similar in a sense that you feel like they've kind of kind of turned the tides and then they get another setback like this Trollin game here. And it's really one that, that you never really understand why it's not working. But on the other hand, there's some clear just recurring themes. And and I think that Adi Hutta is kind of trying to mold his own system that he had at Eintracht Frankfurt, this 3-4-3 free, free with overlapping fullbacks with the Marco Rosa 4-2-3-1 or 4-diamond-2. And it's worked at times. I think, I mean, if you beat Bayern 5-0, it's obviously something's going well. But then you also have these just really disappointing defeats to Augsburg, to Hertha, and of course to Colin last in, in this weekend. So yeah, he hasn't necessarily found a, a formula that works consistently, but he showed in glimpses that the side is, is capable of a of a top four push. And ultimately, like many sides in the division, they're they're only four points off these top four. So even though it hasn't exactly been a spectacular start, they're still well in the race for the Champions League places. And then, and just before we move on, then from Blatt, but I think I'd want to want to add. I mean, injuries have have really taken their toll. We 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 see it with Dortmund, of course, with the amount of muscular injuries they've had. But there's been some serious ones in this Blatt squad with Ben Savaini missing much of the early season, um, Stefan Leiner, Marcus Turam, Brian Bolo, of course, with his customary month-long injuries. So it's given opportunities to a set of young players. We see guys like Coadio Kone and um, Joe Scali coming in, a guy that's probably close to your heart and mine as, as fans of the U.S. men's national team. But, yeah, I mean, obviously young players coming in is something that any club wants, but you also need these seasoned veterans to kind of make sure that you achieve your goals of a, a European finish. You mentioned Coadio Kone uh, there just a moment ago, and he has been, you know, such a revelation that he's been keeping Florian Neuhaus out of the starting lineup for much of the season. And, you know, there's been a fair bit of press in Germany about that fact. About I, I feel like Florian Neuhaus has made more headlines for not playing this season than for playing, which is a bit of a change considering the, the sort of big rise he's had over the last couple of years. But, you know, this this game, it, it was not that. Uh, he was in the headlines for, for 
you know, messing up. He basically gave the ball away in a way that, that led to the, the go-ahead goal for Cologne. So you can't really say he had a positive influence on, on this game or, or, or made any kind of case for uh, an appearance in the starting lineup. Where, where do you think that situation is going? I mean, this is a player who was linked with Bayern over this past summer, who clearly has resale value, but at the same time is clearly a good player if, if you have the right system to put him in. Where do you think Gladbach's head is at right now in terms of, of Neuhaus's future? Yeah, I think it's really, really difficult because it's not just Neuhaus, but also guys like Dennis Zakaria and then Matthias Ginter, who are key players on the side who have contracts running out this summer. So you have a lot of big decisions to make, and Neuhaus is probably the most difficult one out of all of them because he's a player that's undoubtedly talented. He's shown it for Gladbach in, in big Champions League matches also last season, but he's in, a, in, in poor form right now, and, and a player like Claudio Cone has has used that to his advantage and cemented his place in, in Hutter's starting lineup. And so although Neuhaus is still a player of the caliber of a top four team in Germany and even in Europe potentially, he, he does need to make sure that he gets routine playing time if he wants to remain part of Hansi Flick's World Cup plans and then going forward. So yeah, it's a difficult situation which doesn't really have any winners right now because Neuhaus's resale value is going down. Gladbach isn't getting a player that can routinely play 90s for them when he's not at the top four and making mistakes that he did over the weekend. So, yeah, it's definitely one to keep an eye on and to see how this issue gets resolved. Yeah, I'm quite interested as well. All right, let, let's let's leave Gladbach and Cologne behind and talk about a team that's uh, sort of slowly making some moves. Uh, it's it's Hoffenheim who were six three winners in Fürth this weekend. Crazy game. You know, the Clover Leaves actually scored first in, in this game, and they were well in it until maybe a, or somewhere around the 60-minute the mark, but eventually sort of got, got uh, chewed up uh, by by a much too strong Hoffenheim side. Ilhas Bebu was the main man in this game. He got three goals on the day. Hoffenheim, this is a team that has sort of – been a very hard team to get a read on. We were talking about it last week, in fact. But they're now starting to really tiptoe up the table. They're up in the top six. What should we be making of Hoffenheim right now, Adam? Yeah, I think it's difficult to say because if you just look at the squad, I mean, there's a, really a lot of talent there, specifically young talent. You you looked at guys like David Rome, who was arguably the best fullback in, in, in Germany's second division last season, is now a full part of the national team. Guys like Angelo Stilla, another big talent in German football. Jorginho Ruta, of course, who had a tremendous match against Fürth. I think I'd, I'd tell everybody to look at his second goal because that was quite a beauty. So, yeah, there's a lot of lot of top, top talents in there. And then also your guys like Andre Kramaric, who is still one of the best strikers in the Bundesliga and could, could play definitely in, in a Premier League or any of Europe's top four leagues. So there's definitely the talent there. And I think that now that Sebastian Hunes has hopefully gotten over these crazy injury and, and corona crises that were going on last season and, of course, doesn't need to contend with European midweek match days that never really allow you the time to really set up a tactical plan on the training pitch, that, that added time with the side at his disposal has really aided Hoffenheim this this campaign. And I think they're they're definitely in the European places and for, for a reason. And I could see them kind of sneaking into the Champions League at the end of the year because... There's other teams that are faltering, like Wolfsburg, like Gladbach, and Hoffenheim at least look a bit more consistent now that they have a manager for a year and a half. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A couple of other teams who have aspirations to be in Europe or who have been in Europe over the past several years and that, or, or are in Europe now, in the case of Union, Eintracht and Union squared off on Sunday. It was uh, quite a tight match. And in fact, Eintracht left it really late to claim all three points. Evan and Dicka banged in a header with almost the last touch of the game. You know, the Eagles probably should have put the game away in the first half. They probably should have scored two or three goals, I thought. But, you know, they didn't. And Union were able to nick a goal in the second half, and it looked like they were going to sort of, you know, steal a point in this one. How did you read this game, and how do you read where Eintracht are at right now? I mean, I think Union, we, we talked a lot about Union last week because we had Kit Holden on, and I think most of us have a pretty good read on what Union are doing. But what Eintracht are doing or what they're sort of building towards is a little bit more opaque. How do you see them at this stage in the sort of the Glasner era? Yeah, I think they're definitely improving. That That's that's surefire thing to say. I think that we've seen in, in recent weeks that Glasner's getting a bit more of a, of a know-how on how this squad ticks and is kind of confirming who are the players that can be a big part of the starting lineup and which are the ones that are maybe more of a fringe player or an option off the bench. I think what was really interesting is that we saw Jesper Lindstrom and um, Rafael Boré go as the two strikers up top. Neither have necessarily been in great goal-scoring form, but both of them are uh, the two best pressers in the side, two energetic center forwards. So although they might not nick in with the goals, like maybe a Paciencia would, they're, they're guys that will go the meters defensively and make sure that the opposition won't find it as easy to break through the lines. And it allows a guy like Philip Kostic, who is the key man at front for, for the past few seasons, to get even more forward. And that's kind of the deciding factor on, on Sunday night because we saw him put in a spectacular cross for Evan and Deke at the end. So, yeah, I think that there's definitely pauses to see in Oliver Glasner's game plan the last few weeks. They've got some wins on the board after a slow start. This is their first um, home victory of the season obviously a big factor in what is a tremendous stadium there in Frankfurt. So they're definitely on a good path. I don't see them necessarily making Europe again this year, but Frankfurt is also not a side that relies on these European incomes like a Dortmund, like a Bayern. So they'll be happy to just cement themselves in mid-table and then look with Oliver Glasner to do something similar as Wolfsburg did, where they possibly sneak into the Champions League place for the following year. Yeah, if if only if only they had snuck into a Champions League place this last year when when it looked like they would for so long. Okay, let's let's talk a little bit about the remaining games, uh, none of which had quite as many uh, fireworks as uh, a lot of the ones that we've talked about already. Although maybe one of them, at least in terms of late drama, we could make the argument. Late drama that absolutely broke my heart. Uh, this was uh, Hertha BSC's uh, 1-1 draw against FC Augsburg. Augsburg got their one goal with actually legit the final uh, you know, touch of the game, about 97 minutes into the game, where Michal Grigorich sort of put in a looping header and uh, erased all of the Fairly good work. I don't want to praise them too much uh, that, that Hertha had done in, in the previous uh, 96 minutes. I thought this was a huge missed opportunity for Hertha. I mean, obviously, when you're at home and you're winning 1-0 against uh, a team who's a fellow relegation rival in, in Augsburg, uh, you got to feel pretty bad about letting that slip away. I've obviously thought a lot and talked a lot about Hertha uh, this season, including last week. 
do you have any 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 takes on what's wrong with them or what what they can do to stop being so bad? Yeah, well, I mean, it feels a little bit like how much time do we have? Because there's a lot to unpack. Yeah, I'm I'm sorry to put you on that. I'll put you on that. Yeah, but I think I think the main factor is I mean, in Paul Dada, you have a coach who has very defensive and, and tepid tactics. You know, it's not exciting football and. When you get a, a manager like that, it's all result-driven. You can't necessarily fall back on the fact that, yeah, well, at least we're playing inside and attacking football and the fans are entertained. No, you have to kind of win games, get points on the board if you're going to play such a defensive, such a defensive style. And after the, after the um, Berlin Derby defeat in, in just such a poor manner, not even the results, just how they performed, to then let's slip the three points again this week doesn't look good for, for his job and for Hertha and yeah, like you said, something really does need to change in, in January if there's someone available or at the latest this summer when you can get a really high-quality manager because, I mean, they've definitely splashed out on the transfer market, but since Lars Vintors has come in with his millions, I, I don't really remember any managerial appointment really sparking that much optimism in me. Yeah, well, other than the false optimism that reigned briefly when Clancy came in, but the less said about him, the better. <laughs> Stuttgart, that was a pretty interesting result. It was This is all the way back on Friday night. They were 2-1 winners over Mainz. Yeah, probably even more important than uh, you know, a nice goal from a nice player who needed to get a nice goal uh, was the return of uh, Silas, the guy who we, we knew last season as Silas Wamangatuka, who, you know, overcame his, you know, Agent blackmailing him over, you know, falsified documents, saga, blah, blah, blah. He is Silas Katompa Mvumpa. Or just Silas these days, I think, as, as his shirt says, and as, as even 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 kicker just calls him plain Silas. For me, this was one of the big missing pieces for this team. Are you more or less in agreement? Do you want to see Stuttgart take off with the you know the, the rocket named Silas strapped to their back? Yeah, I mean, if you talked about an exciting team in last season's Bundesliga, there there weren't many more so than um, Falke Stuttgart, and a big part of that was Silas. Think that his his dynamism, his raw pace and power, it's something that you don't see every day. And even in the few minutes that he was on the pitch, he's just such a nuisance for defenders because you never really know if you want to step in and, and risk having him just pace by you or kind of back off and have him come with full tempo at you. So, yeah, it's definitely an exciting player. And he'll ease that attacking burden off, off Borna Sosa because we've seen this season that Borna Sosa has been tasked with a lot of the creative influence down the left side and kind of evening that out last season where we saw Silas on the right, Borna Sosa on the left. It just provides different options for, for defensive to deal with. And that's only a good thing for Pellegrino Matarazzo to have now at his disposal. Yeah, yeah. I would hope that things would start looking up for that side because they have frankly not been good this season. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the final one on our slate. That's Bochum's 2-1 defeat of Freiburg. I guess we can we can maybe put a lid on this by saying that this was a surprise, although maybe not as big a surprise as some would think. Are you are you higher on on Bochum and maybe less high on Freiburg than than some folks? Yeah, I think that obviously we we all saw Freiburg kind of regressing to the mean a little bit. And I don't think anybody saw them competing for the title with Bayern. The fact that they've now lost three matches in a row is is never a good sign. I don't think that this is going to be a trend that continues for too long. I think that they'll end up probably, as always, around that 10th spot. So I don't think it's necessarily the end of the world after Freiburg and they'll kick themselves out of this. But it's, again, big points for Bochum because they're one that 
myself included, kind of tipped as a relegation candidate. But they seem to be be keeping steady in, in mid-table. They haven't really been blown out other than that Bayern game. They've taken good points off of some teams down at the bottom. I remember that match against your Hertha where they were probably actually the better side on the occasion and just got a bit unlucky. And, I mean, special mention to Manuel Rima because besides taking penalties in the Bundesliga, he seems to be able to do everything else in goal. He's quite a shot stopper, and then he's definitely got the quality to make sure that they stay up this season. All right, thus endeth this edition of Talking Foosball, which was produced, as always, by Aiden Rantoul. Really good to have you on for the first time, Adam. Yeah, it was a pleasure being on. It's exciting to always talk about the Bundesliga and... As we talked about at the beginning of the show, looking forward to Der Klassiker next week then. Hell yeah. Uh, you can follow Adam uh, on Twitter. He is double uh, X, Adam Khan, double X. You, you must be must be a straight edge kid, this one. <laughs> you get things you want to plug? I think you should have some things to plug. You've been doing some pretty great stuff lately. Yeah, I think I have a lot of cool stuff all going around the Bundesliga. So first of all, you can follow my newsletter. That's on Substack. And if you just type in the German Football Weekly, you can get to that pretty easily. So every Friday, there's a new topic coming out. Always something exciting to look out for. Last week, we, we had something on Bayern's defensive issues. So there's definitely topical subjects that pertain to all of your favorite Bundesliga sides. And for some more live chats, you can always tune into the Breaking the Lines Twitter channel. That's BTLVid on Twitter. And at um, 19 o'clock Central European Summertime, there's always something special going on there where we talk about Bundesliga or just European football in general. So always something happening with the Adam Kahn label. Awesome. All right. The Matt Herman label is, uh, you know, not as active as the Adam Kahn label other than here at Talking Foosball. But if you want to reach out to me on Twitter, it's at Mr. Matt Herman. Talking Foosball Extra with uh, Nick Vildhagen. We'll be back in just a couple of days. And uh, Talking Foosball Fantasy with JT and Flo. We'll get you ready for match day 14 at the end of the week. Missing some next simoleon.